Good evening, and welcome to the second-to-last GVALS event of the academic year 2020-2021. We're really happy to have Dr. Steve Garber with us this evening. Please, before I introduce Dr. Garber, please know that tomorrow at 1010, there's another lecture in here with Dr. Garber, and I would invite you to come back for that. I think we have a few seats open for that tomorrow, so please consider coming back tomorrow. Steve Garber is Senior Fellow for Vocation and the Common Good for the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. He served recently as Professor of Marketplace Theology and Director of the Masters in Leadership, Theology, and Society at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Steve's the author of several books, and we do have all of them out on the table. We invite you uh, afterwards to come out and um, take a look at the books there and uh, purchase them. They are Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good, and that's something that uh, faculty and staff, a group of faculty and staff, are reading this semester. I highly recommend it to you. His most recent book is The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love, Learning, Worship, and Work. Steve is one of the founders of the Wedgwood Circle, and for many years, Dr. Garber was the principal of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. And he continues to serve as a consultant to colleges and corporations, facilitating both individual and institutional vocation. A husband, a father, and I would add a Geneva graduate, he has long lived in Washington, D.C., living a life among family, friends, and flowers. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Steve Garber back to Geneva College. We're all on here? Okay, good. I have to confess to you that I did buy three huge, like, big bags of M&Ms, like this kind and this kind and this kind, like thinking, I want to serve a diverse audience, really, when I get to Geneva. It's like, I'm going to buy big bags, and then I left them at the place I'm staying. I'm thinking, how are you going to eat them under the conditions of COVID? Like, where are we going to put them? Are we going to dolly out a little like bit for you and a little bit for you, and we can't put our hands in anywhere to eat them? I left them. I'm sorry. I wanted you to have M&M's tonight. So there it is. It was my best hope, and it's a flawed ambition tonight. So, mm-hmm. Can M&M save the world on the business of business? For many years, I traveled back and forth from Washington, D.C. to Nashville, Tennessee. One of my sons actually said to me, I think this has become your second home, Dad. You're just there so often. And I was in and out of Nashville you know, regularly for a long time and meeting with different kinds of people. And obviously, Nashville being the city that it is, it's not only the home to Vanderbilt University and Belmont University, but it's a home to, to Music Row, as they call it. And for a long line of a, of a long street in Nashville, literally just walking its way out of Belmont University, down to downtown Nashville, there is house upon house, building upon building, all dedicated to the production of music. All different kinds of enterprises and imaginations you can imagine, but they're all there intending to hire the next young, you know, hopeful, whether she'll be Taylor Swift or not, you know, they're there with pen in hand, and, you know, we hope you're good enough to do, to do the music we want you to do. But over the years, I, I, you know, I began to ask a question. It actually was originated in a place called the Art House in Nashville, 
And there were a few of us gathered to speak to about 50 young musicians with hopes and dreams for careers in the music world. And I asked a question that, that weekend, which I'm still asking and I'll ask tonight in different ways. But the question was this, can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? Can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? One of my closest friends in Nashville, really in the whole of my life, is someone named Charlie Peacock. And he is a former musician himself from years and years ago. But as he said, you know, after a while, you're no longer the young face on the stage and you began to have to figure out, well, am I going to do this somehow or go, go home to someplace else? And he decided to stay in Nashville and become a producer of musicians. And along the way, he began to produce, you know, when Amy Grant made her transition from the Christian music world into a wider world, he was her producer of her music. You know, when Switchfoot, you know, sent Charlie a little badly produced tape, you know, from their surfing garage in San Diego, he said, I was thought this is the worst produced tape I've ever seen in my life. Really, But they're good lyrically. You know, the next morning he called them. They got on a plane, flew out to San Diego and said, can I help you guys, you know, grow into musicians? They were 17, 18 year old surfers. And of course, their career began to move and he began to be their producer for album after album. Um, Along the way, there was a group of, you know, a guy and a girl, a girl and a guy who had their own careers. And he was part of a project that I was a part of through this Wedgwood Circle. And it was trying to find promising young musicians who might find a new way to sing a new song. And he thought she did and he did. And what about if we put them together? And they became a band called the Civil Wars. And uh, they did some awfully good music for several years until they had their own civil war and it stopped making music really. But they made, they won Grammys and Charlie won Grammys with them. Uh, but along the way, Charlie, you know, wrote a book called At the Crossroads. And At the Crossroads was the argument that in, we've discovered that they're in a parochially imagined world where Christians make songs that other Christians will listen to, that we can make money doing this. But his question in a book-length way was, but should we be? Is it legitimate to do this, really? Is this actually a good business to be done in the world? That Christians sing songs, sell them to Christians, and that's the, the, the work of our lives. Now, I would never say that, you know, Christians shouldn't sing songs that other Christians should, should, should hear and sing. That's not my point. But Charlie's argument was, should we imagine actually a kind of music to be done, an artful imagination that might be of interest in the wider world. So when the Dove Music Awards were giving out their best albums of the year, I was actually in Nashville when this happened one year, and they wanted to give the big banner over the main street downtown was, congratulations, Switchfoot. um, Well, Switchfoot actually didn't even go to the gala awards that night. Um, They're really good guys, good guys, really good guys, it wasn't out of defiance or anger, but they just said, we don't see ourselves making Christian songs for Christian people. It's not what we're doing, actually. Um, now, when Civil Wars came into being, if you know the song Barton Hollow, for example, which won the Grammy uh, that year. What's it a song about? Just go online and look up Barton Hollow. I think it's called The American Musician. It's a, a magazine that comes out regularly. There's a fascinating article two or three years ago by a guy who just said, you know, here's this remarkable band. They went out of being, sadly. But, you know, 
the song was about this and this and this. And the song was about actually about sin and what you do with sin in the world, in your own life. And whether this can be a way to address it or this way to address it. You know. But you see, they found a way to artfully, musically, beautifully, hauntingly, lyrically address the question of who are we as human beings? In our heart of all hearts, what are we going to do with our bentness, our brokenness, our woundedness, our sinfulness? And is there any hope here, any hope here, any hope here? Really? Now, the world at large said, that's very good music, actually. You are very good at what you're doing. They weren't put in the box of Christian musicians singing Christian songs. In many ways, they were listening to Charlie, who was the producer of the song, to help them to imagine a different vocation, actually, a different way to be in the world, to do work in the world. So here again, my question. Can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe, but in language the whole world can understand? I've been asking that question a lot for many years of many different people, many different places. But one time at a breakfast, probably 15 years ago, at a fancy pants place in Washington, D.C., wasn't my bill. They were paying the bill, but that's where it was. And it was with two executives from the Mars Corporation. And Mars does make M&Ms and a lot of other things. And they had a conversation they wanted to have with me. They were one, the chief economist. One was the head of global you know, information for, for Mars uh, as a company. And the conversation was about how much money should we make this year? I said, why are you asking a question like that? You know, and the chief economist said, well, one of the owners, the three owners, one of the three Mars siblings had asked me as the chief economist to help us think through how much money should we make this year? I can talk a lot more about all that, and I'll talk some about that tonight. But when I began to press and press and ask where and why, where's this, why are you asking a question like this? Eventually, I heard these words. Well, you see, when I was a graduate student years ago in Paris, I came across the, the biblical idea of jubilee. And he said, I was intrigued by what the jubilee of God might mean in the modern world. He says, now, 20 years later, I'm the chief economist of a global corporation. He says, our task is not making Christian M&Ms. But he says, we're trying to sell things to the whole world. But you see, we want to keep making money over the long haul. We want to have sustained profitability mark our corporate life, our business life. So how do you keep making money? And Bruno, as he said to me, I began thinking through, what does the jubilee of God have to say to how people make money in the world and have a business in the world? Now, if you've ever thought about the jubilee of God, you realize on the one hand, it's a remarkably multifaceted, you know, very complete vision of what it is to flourish in God's world, you know, socially, economically, environmentally, you know, politically, legally, you know, across the spectrum, really, of all different parts of life. The Jubilee of God was meant to be a way to live in God's world. You do it this way week by week, and this way year by year, and this way every seven years, and this way every seven times seven years, and then the, the Seven times seven years, the 50th year, really, will be the year of the Jubilee. And the crazy sadness of this worn-out world, <clears throat> it was never, ever practiced by the people of God. They just never, ever had the political, social courage to bring it into being. 
which was a tragedy for them, I think, really. But Bruno got caught by this. He said, I've been wondering now that I have the job I have as chief economist. Could we somehow learn from this vision and try to work it out in the globalizing economy of the 21st century? Now, I need to underscore something right very clearly at the beginning here. This was never an idea born of wanting to be nice. Like, how could the Mars Corporation be nice to the world? They refuse corporately to ever, ever publish anything that's a CSR report, a a corporate social, you know, responsibility report. They don't do any green spinning, you know. Well, you see, in reality, we are quietly, but in the public eye, we do things like this, you see, you know. They have rejected green spin and CSR, you know, uh, spins on what they're trying to do. But the idea has always been, how do we actually work out of a principled vision of the way business ought to be done? And when I use the language ought to be done, you you are the Geneva College community. But you realize, of course, if I use that language of ought to be done, and we were talking on the campus of the University of Pittsburgh instead, or Carnegie Mellon instead, or you walk your way across the higher education institutions in America and around the world, the language of ought to be done Ought to be done is not language which would be very friendly. It might be seen as, you know, arrogance. It could be seen as myopia. It could be seen as, what on earth have you just said? Ought to be done by whom? And when? And how would you ever know it anyway? Ought to be done? Please. Well, that was our question that morning. How should business be done in the world? We decided over the next, you know, days and weeks, Uh, to call this project, this conversation, the economics of mutuality. Economics of mutuality. Because you see, the jubilee of God, if anything, it is an economics of jubilee, of of mutuality. What is it? Well, just seeing, saying, well, I'm actually in this with you. In the strange political vocabulary history of America, there's still a few states that call themselves the commonwealth of Pennsylvania is one of those places. It is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Do you ever ponder the word itself, Commonwealth? It's actually a very good word. It's actually a very rich word. It's an evocative word. It's a profound word. Because it's realizing that from the very beginning, we see ourselves as bound up together and that our wealth in some ways is in common. Not because it's socialism or communism, you know, heaven forbid, you know, I'm smiling at all of you here tonight, you know. But actually, how would we actually see that, in fact, we're bound up with each other? That my happiness is your happiness on some level. That my wealth, in fact, is in relationship to your wealth. That, in fact, our, our fortunes, our possibilities, our hopes, in fact, are mutually dependent upon each other. We could tease that out a long time tonight. But I just want you to remember that this is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's not a very far, far distance, actually, from an idea of the economics of mutuality. The economics of mutuality. Because, you see, that idea is an argument that, in fact, to keep making money over the long haul, you have to actually have a more complex bottom line. The bottom line has to go beyond what business schools the world over have been teaching for the last generation or more. 
which is that the only real rule of business is that you maximize shareholder profit quarter by quarter, and especially year after year. That that's really in the real economic of business practice. That the only real question for real business is, have you made the most money possible this quarter and this year? Especially have you maximized shareholder profit this quarter and this year? Well, the Jubilee of God obviously argues for something more than that and different than that. But because Mars is not a parochial company, it isn't trying to make Christian candy or Christian pet food. Like my friend Charlie was saying about music, can we make Christian music? Is that a possibility even? And should we even be doing that? Should we, should the paradigm that produces that even be our paradigm? Couldn't we actually rethink the very business of the business of music? Well, in the Mars Corporation, the question was, how do we actually keep making money into the future? And we can only do so if we acknowledge that it requires a more complex bottom line. Now, broad, broad brushstroke here, because there's a lot more detail now in place in all this. But we began talking about, you know, three different realities that had to be acknowledged in the complexity of an honest bottom line. The bottom line had to include profit, of course, because no business keeps in business if they don't make a profit. If Geneva College can't get enough students to come in year after year, and it goes on for several years, there's no longer a business here, actually. It just can't keep doing it. Doesn't, doesn't work that way. No. If the little pharmacy across the street from the bagpiper can't sell stuff, you know, to keep people drawn in, it goes out of business and now it's a boarded up, you know, empty building. You think, oh, shouldn't it be here really? No. When I was a student in Geneva, there was a DeAngelis Donuts just down the street. Well, of course it no longer is in Beaver Falls economy. And now Orem's has taken, I suppose, everybody's place being the most famous donut in Pennsylvania. But you see, you have to make money to be in business. And Mars has to, too. But the argument was that money or profit has to be placed alongside people, which has to be placed alongside the planet. And there are three realities that have to be held together with honesty if we're going to continue to make money into the future. Because Mars makes a lot of M&Ms, drawing upon a lot of chocolate, and most of the chocolate that they want to buy is produced in West Africa. Early on, the question I began asking in this, and it became to be a very big question that we were trying to address corporately, was, well, you see, this can't be just a conversation among the executives in McLean, Virginia. Yes, yes, here. But you see, if it doesn't actually work out for those who grow cocoa beans, in West Africa, in Sierra Leone, in Ghana. Uh, if it doesn't actually have meaning for where they live, the housing they have, for the med- medical facilities that their families have access to, for the schools their children go to school at, you know, if we actually are not, not concerned for the wholeness of their lives, then you see, this is just a pipe dream. We had to stop the conversation today because this is a stupid thing to be talking about. If the economics of mutuality can't actually go to those on the ground growing chocolate that we're buying to make M&Ms and more. What you see is people, but it's also a concern about the cocoa trees themselves. Because if you're just trying to take everything out, extracting all resource out of, as soon as you possibly can, well, in reality, just pretty simply to say this, there'll be no cocoa trees in 25 years. 
It just doesn't work that way in the world. So there would have to be an honest sense of responsible stewardship for the trees themselves if we're actually going to continue to make money into the future. Some of you know more of this story than some of the rest of you tonight. But along the way, probably within the first year or so, I gave these executives an essay by Wendell Berry called The Two Economies. The Two Economies. Because I live in Washington, D.C., as I was thinking through his argument, I thought, well, I see this here in Washington, D.C. Barry's argument was that wherever you look in the world, there are two economies. There are lesser economies, and there's always a greater economy. The lesser economies in my world of Washington, D.C. would be, say, you know, the Virginia economy, the Washington, D.C. economy, you know, all the Starbucks in Washington, D.C.'s economy. All the, all the, all the, all the, all the businesses, large and small, which in some ways, year after year, are saying, you see, we set out these numbers, hoping we're going to make these sales in the course of a year. We're going to check in quarter by quarter to see where we are. If we have to make adjustments, six months in, we will. And 12 months or nine months in, we will, of course, more drastically, perhaps. Because you see, at the end of the year, our numbers have to be right. But Barry's argument is that as strict as that is, as careful as the math is, you know, as watchful as you might be, at the end of the day, those are lesser economies because they, they make up the, the numbers they want to live with year by year by year. And they either make them or don't make them. But Barry argues that in reality, there's always a greater economy. In the greater economy, you don't get to choose, you don't get to prefer, you don't get to want because it is, in fact the world that really is there. It is reality. In Barry's own argument, he would say, in my mind, this is the kingdom of God, but you can call it what you want to call it. But it, in fact, it's the world you don't get to choose or prefer or want because it's the world that really is there after all. If that's hard to grasp, let me give you another window into this. Years ago, I came across an essay in the magazine of all things called Esquire. And Esquire had an ethics column for many years by a man named Harry Stein. And this essay was titled, The Big A, If You Want Frustration, Guilt, and Anxiety, Try Adultery. If you want frustration, guilt, and anxiety, try adultery, the big A. And for two pages in Esquire's magazine, simply his own reflections on what he knew about life in Manhattan among people like him, who were there, you know, in their probably their 20s, their 30s or so, who imagined in some ways that you could do anything you wanted to relationally, sexually, and there were no no consequences ever for anyone. You know, he walks this through. There isn't a theological note in the whole essay. God's never mentioned in the essay. Exodus 20, you should not commit adultery, is never mentioned in the essay. But the last words of the essay are these. We have seven millennia of human history to draw upon, and the evidence appears conclusive that duplicity, no matter who's involved, makes everyone involved feel rotten. The alternative, nurturing trust and commitment, is a hell of a lot more work. But what choice do we have? Again, there isn't a theological note in the whole essay. He's just saying, if you look at the world that really is there, You can't live in it any way you want. Barry calls this the greater economy. The greater economy. It's what we don't get to choose or want or prefer or like because it's the way the world really is. 
And eventually, in my world of Washington, D.C., having grown up on the West Coast of America, coming to live in Washington, D.C. for many, for 30 years now, I didn't even know there was a Chesapeake Bay probably before I moved there. But there is, and it's a remarkable, unusual body of water in America. On the one hand, it's fed by the water, great waterways, rivers of Pennsylvania, the Susquehanna, and Virginia, the Potomac, which Shenandoah becoming the Potomac, and, and they feed into make the Chesapeake Bay the Chesapeake Bay on the one side. The other side, of course, it's the Atlantic Ocean coming in to this body of water. And so unusual for what it is in America and probably the world, it's, it's water which is both fresh and salt at the same time. And what it's remarkably able to do is to be, be a place where crab upon crab upon crab grows and thrives and flourishes. When I moved to Washington, I was surprised to find that one of the delights of summertime life was to sit on a a a wooden table outside with newspapers spread out in front of you with a wooden mallet and have fresh hot crabs thrown onto the newspapers. And you just sit there for hours, pounding the crabs open, picking out the little bits of crab, and having a long, long, good conversation in the summertime heat of the Chesapeake Bay. I never even knew that existed until I moved to to Virginia. Well, about 10 years ago, the legislatures in Virginia and Maryland began to realize as they were hearing reports from, you know, counties and producers and, you know, businesses that in fact the crab, crabs were no longer what they once were in the Chesapeake Bay. Well, they did more research, asked more questions, and finally strictures were put into place by the legislatures of these two states saying you can only take out male crabs now this time of the year, and, and female crabs now this time of the year, and then a couple of years later, it still wasn't any better. Well, you can only take out these size crabs at this time of the year because, you see, if we don't stop this, there'll be no more crabs left, actually. Because you know what had happened in the 20th century? Well, two factors, as I have watched it, took place. On the one hand, a growing industrialized agriculture, say in the middle of Pennsylvania, good, good, good people, Dairy people imagine them to be. Been there for several generations with their best cows and their best hopes and finding that the economy is a hard economy to raise dairy cows and produce milk in. And the fertilizer salesman comes by one day and he says, you know what? I can promise you, you'll double your yield of corn next year if you actually put on my fertilizer on your field for the next year's crop. You say, double it? I need more money because I'm hardly making it at all. No malice at all. But you see, what happened over the course of years is that happened again and again. And with a certain innocence, environmental, historical innocence, I would argue, that fertilized soil began to move its way down into the little creeks and streams and finally into the Susquehanna. The same thing happened in Virginia with the Potomac and the Shenandoah. And what happened was that it began to be large, large sections of the Chesapeake Bay that were dead, just ecologically dead. And there was nothing, nothing alive in these huge parts of the bay. Why were the crabs crying out against, you know, history and the economy? Because they said, what are we going to breathe? You know, we can't live any longer, actually. You want to know why we have no more babies? You know, because we're not living any longer here. If that happened on the one side, on the other side, of course, it was restaurateurs in Denver who promised their best paying customers you could always get crabs if you come here and you pay our price night by night, January, February, March, July, you know, August, September. Every night of the year, we can provide crabs. Well, they'll cost you. We have access to the best Chesapeake Bay crabs that money can buy. 
And you see, if the only two rules are this you know, supply-demand economy of Denver and restaurants, morally malicious, malicious? I don't think so, really. Um, you know, trying to do a bad thing in history? I don't think so, really. The farmers in the middle of Pennsylvania, I don't think so, really. But you see, conspiring in a certain kind of unusual historical nexus, it made the Chesapeake Bay be dead. And apart from strict legislation brought into being in the last 10 years, the crabs were simply crying out against, you know, the history. In Barry's terms, you see, it was the lesser economy bumping up against the reality of the greater economy. The big A, you want frustration, guilt, and anxiety? Try adultery. Well, I gave this essay to the the executives from the Mars Corporation. They asked, can we talk to this man? So we flew down to Kentucky to spend the day talking to Wendell Berry and his farm, um, asking him to think with us about this idea we had of of a jubilee-born economic vision, of an economics of mutuality. I'd promised them that he actually had been writing about these very questions for most of his life. So he had a lot to teach us if we were willing to listen to him. And some of you know, because we talked about these things before, but the end of the very the day we had with him, um, he said this to us, and they're words written into my heart now, because he, they're words that I will never forget in this life. You know, if you want to make money for a year, you have to ask certain questions. But you want to make money for a 100 years, you have to ask other questions. And, of course, our project, Economics of Mutuality, is more that hundred-year conversation. Well, we began to push this out and to think it through and to work on it. And because Mars is a large corporation, this was never again, as I will say to you for the second time tonight, it was never, ever motivated by the desire to be nice to the world. Could we find some kind of a nice thing to do to give away a few more M&Ms to, to you and to you and to you and to you? It will be nice this year to the world. It was never the motivation because Mars is a global corporation making billions of dollars a year. This was always about the hardest rules in the sense of real economic. And if the economists employed by Mars couldn't be persuaded of the numbers, there was no way this was ever going to go forward. It couldn't be only the CEO who thought, I like this idea. It couldn't just be the CFO who said, I'm interested in this idea. But there were seven divisional presidents, you know, chocolate and drinks and pet food and on and on, who had to be persuaded that, in fact, somehow the numbers made sense. So eventually, after a year, probably five years of very close, scrutinized, you know, internal, hard, hard, hard work on the numbers, it doesn't make sense to us to remunerate a more complex bottom line of actually acknowledging people and profit and, and planet. We took this to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, which is one of the probably the best-known testing laboratory in America. A former U.S. Army general was in charge of it, and we gave it to him and said, here's our numbers. We'll pay you all you need to be paid to look at the numbers as carefully as you need to. Take as long as you want to, but we're going to look to you to help us to know, in fact, do the numbers make sense? And after months of labor, of scrutiny upon scrutiny, he came back and said, you get an A+. The numbers make sense to us here. So at that point, we began to take this idea out into the wider world. We went to Boston twice to the Harvard Business School to talk about it with them. They were interested in adopting this 
new economics and mutuality as their own distinct program, like the University of Chicago had done with the Friedman School. Um, the Wharton School said the very same thing to us at, at, at Penn. You know, could we become the intellectual academic home for this new economics and mutuality? The decision was to go to the Oxford University's Said School of Business instead, because it offered a more global platform for this idea. And the idea, the question from the very beginning was, how could we actually take this out into the wider world? If it's true for us, it must be true in different kinds of ways for people all over the world. Important to me, I think important to all of you, the ones I know in this room at least, was that the first test cases for this idea were done in what would be honestly described as the poorest communities on the planet. Maybe some of you have been to the Kabera neighborhood in Nairobi. It goes on and on, and millions of people live there, really, in the in very destitute conditions, actually. I've walked there, maybe you have, several times. But the decision was to go to Kabera and to see, could we actually take this economics of mutuality and find a way to make it work in this neighborhood. Because you see, the determination was, it can't just work among nice people in nice places, so to speak. I mean, those who have access to financial resources, who can make all kinds of decisions. But you see, if it's going to be really true, it has to be worked out in a place where it's hard to work it out. It was next decided to take it to Manila, to the, you know, the, the uh, garbage terribly named garbage neighborhoods of Manila and asked the same question. Could we actually work this out here where people feel like they have no possibilities, where there's no futures, where the conditions are so gloomy? And after trying it out in several places like that, the decision was, I think we're learning something about what this looks like and how it's to be done. Moving from those neighborhoods and those places to Singapore, one of the most, you know, gleaming cities in the face of the earth. Uh, I've traveled a little bit in my life and, you know, like some airports better than other airports. I would say, hands down, the most impressive airport in the world is Singapore. Uh, You know, if you travel into any U.S. airport that I've ever been in, you think, okay, but not quite at all, actually. And Singapore is just incredible that way. Um, You may laugh at, you know, the rules on the ground. You can't chew gum in Singapore. You know why? Because they don't want gum on the sidewalks. Think, well, who are you to say I can't do what I want to do? Well, they do actually. And you may think, well, that's pretty draconian. I like gum anyway. Well, you can't chew gum in Singapore actually because they don't want on the sidewalks. The other side to their social economy though is that they reward people financially. Um, children to live within two miles of their parents because they think that it's better for the city, which is also a country, it's a city that's also a country, for families actually to live near each other. And so there's financial reward offered to to children who choose to live within two miles of their parents. They think it's better for everybody if that kind of social ecology is remembered and nourished and honored. It's a strange city, but the sovereign fund of Singapore, which is one of the most wealthy funds in the world has also come in on this project with the Marsh Corporation and said, we want to figure out how we could use the same idea of an economics of mutuality to actually work out how our investments work uh, in Singapore and beyond all over the world. I could tell you story after story of that. Uh, the last six years, though, 
there's been a partnership between Mars and Oxford University and the Said School there to teach this economics and mutuality to the MBA students who are going through there. It's been fascinating to watch this. I was there one year when there was at the end of the academic year in May, a responsible business forum, they called it. And 500 business leaders from all over the world were there just to listen in and to say, so what are you guys saying? I read about this. I I read an interview, but like, are you saying this? Like, you're actually going to change the way you think about business? I mean, isn't business just business? Don't you just do business because business is business, really? And then you hope that by November you've made enough money to be kind to people and generous to people and be philanthropic. Because, but isn't just business you just play by the rules of business? What do you mean you're trying to, to rethink the business of business? So I would say now for six years, these responsible business forums have been held at the end of the year among serious business people from all over the world who are just asking question after question. What are you saying This isn't more than just being nice. This is actually the way you want to do business because you want to make money and real money. And for Mars, it's actually billions of dollars again next year. And you think that actually you could, you could recast the rules and you could still make money. If you ask different questions, if you required of your business a more complex bottom line, if you somehow acknowledge the two economies, that there actually is a reality to human life under the sun, whether you like it or not. In fact, the way you do business has to reflect something of the reality of how God intends business to be done in the world because you see there is really an ought to how we ought to live in the world. In the last three years now, there have been two books written about this. Um, They're easily available. Uh, One's called Completing Capitalism, Heal Business to Heal the World. The head of the Sovereign Fund of Singapore wrote, the you know forward to the book. I wrote one of the endorsements to the book. Um, but there are people, unlike me typically, who are much more inv- involved in the business of business in the world than I am. The people who are weighing in to say, we actually think this book is making a fascinating, important argument. Not rejecting capitalism, because that's sort of the, the knee-jerk we might make, where you see it's either this or it's this. You know, you either believe in this or you must you must be a communist then. Or maybe you're just a socialist then, but I mean, like, if you don't believe it works this way, well, what else could you possibly do? But you see, in some ways, that's a stunted imagination. It's like my friend Charlie Peacock said in Nashville years ago. It's a stunted vocational imagination to only think that if you're a Christian, you can make, quote, Christian songs and do, quote, Christian music. What about doing songs that the whole world would be interested in listening to? And so completing capitalism is deeply, profoundly born of the jubilee of God. It's not explicitly made as an argument, but there's anybody, nobody who knows anything about the project has any question about that. But you see, in some ways, like the book of Esther is a book in the Bible all about God and his world and his city and his people who live in his world. But the name of God is not mentioned in the book, is it? So we call a lot of our efforts Esterian in that sense. Not trying to hide convictions or to walk away from faith. It's just saying in a pluralizing, secularizing, globalizing world, how are you going to sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? 
you'd have to listen pretty carefully to the song Barton Hollow by the Civil Wars to understand that it's about sin and the problem of sin and whether there's a God in the world who could address the sin. Really. In one sense, I'm sure those who were giving out the Grammys that year were not drawn in by the theology of the song. They were drawn in by the human pathos, by the existential longing, by the musical, artful gift and, and skill of the song. Our completing capitalism book is not again about rejecting business, rejecting money, rejecting capital or capitalism. But the argument is to rethink the business of business is to be about healing business to heal the world. I could tell you a lot more about all that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I took Hebrew one year just across this hallway and I didn't do very well at it. You know, I have to confess to you. I picked up a few ideas and a few words and along the way, you know, of our discussions the last 15 years in the Mars Corporation, there was some interest in, you know, what does God want done in the world? And I offered the Mars Corporation these two words out of the Hebrew language. And they are the words tikkun olam, T-I-K-K-U-N space olam, O-L-A-M. And the words mean to repair the world, to repair the world. Talking to somebody last night at an event that Brad and Keith put together downtown Beaver Falls, who knows Hebrew a lot more than I do. Actually, it's Russ over at the Beaver Falls coffee and tea place. You know, and uh, he said, now, you know, he says, as good a word as a shalom is, and it's a very good word. Takun Olam actually sort of gets at what do you do then? How do you take the vision of the way things should be and try to, to work it out in the world? So it's this image of to repair the world. So written into the subtitle of this book, Heal Business to, Re- to Heal the World, is the Takun Olam idea, born of the Hebrew Christian tradition, born of Hebrew Christian visions of life in the world, of what vocation means for the world. Because I'm at Geneva College tonight in these, these three days, I wanted to say to you that in the last seven, eight months, I suppose, this project has moved from McLean, Virginia, part of Washington, D.C., from Mars's global headquarters. Now it's been reset in Geneva, Switzerland, that other place called Geneva in the world. And so it's, re- it's in residence there. And there's a team of people being put together. And I, in fact, part of my life, I work for this project um, as an advisor to it, kind of a professor at large in some ways for this project. To help them think through what? Well, I'm here on the dollar of Geneva, but it's a dollar of Geneva because the Lilly Endowment funded Geneva to once again think more deeply and carefully and critically about the meaning of vocation. That's what this project is about. That's where the money comes from to have me be here for tonight. It's called the NetView program funded by the Lilly Endowment, which is committed to colleges, universities like Geneva all over America who are seriously interested in rethinking or thinking through again, what does vocation mean for us within our tradition, within through our, our beliefs about God in the world? So for the Presbyterians here, but also for the Wesleyans there and the Baptists there and the Catholics there, all these schools with ecclesial history have access to money from the Lilly Endowment to think through more deeply, more critically, what does vocation mean for learning and for life? Voc- the economics of mutuality has chosen to take up the idea of vocation frontally in this and to say, we want to think through what the word means, what the idea means 
for the sake of the businesses we're doing, because you think, we think that in fact, you can't understand the business of business unless you understand who you are and why you are, the very nature of vocation. We've talked a lot about in the last, you know, weeks and months about moving from the idea of business transactions as contracts to covenants. Some of you know this history, some of you probably don't, but it's the Reformed Presbyterians behind this idea of Geneva College, the Covenanters, sometimes they've been called. Um, Covenants are actually a pretty good word. I've been in phone calls and Zoom presentations the last month with, you know, Jewish members of the House of Lords in London and economists and financiers in London who are using the language of how do we think through moving from business as contract to business as covenant. Now, if you find your way able to simply think covenanters, 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 really, and maybe you have good reasons for doing that. I don't know, really. But I would say to you, before you do that too quickly, don't give up the word too quickly. But you see, the word actually has resonance and has meaning for you and for me in the world. Because you see, if it's only, only contract, and you see, you know, getting my name on the dotted line in the right place in the right way, it binds me to certain legal requirements. But in a sense, it re- releases us from any sense of human contact and connection. No sense of common wealth or common good, because you see, this is just what I have to do because the contract requires it of me. This is because anything I, I might want to do or feel responsible to do or obliged to do for, for love's sake because I care about my neighbor. It's simply, you see, what I have to do because the contract requires it of me. Covenant, you see, is a different idea. It it acknowledges from the very beginning that we're in relationship to each other. And if we're in relationship to each other, you see, we're responsible to and for each other. That's what covenants are about. Always, everywhere. So our language has been moving the conversation about the business of business from contract to covenant. My deepest conviction, friends, tonight, the thing I most deeply believe to be true about everything in the universe, this is like weighty words for me, maybe not for you, but they are for me, is that we live in the covenantal cosmos of God. I believe nothing more deeply than that, I don't think. I can't think about it, at least have been able to arrive at anything which it matters more to me or is more a deeper conviction for me than we live in the covenantal cosmos of God. You see, if that's what is true about reality, about life in the world, then you see, business can't be just business. And politics can't be just politics. And art can't be just art. And learning isn't just learning. Like love is not just love. You see, rather, they're all about something. They're all about something. All about something more. Each one meant to be a signpost of what could be and might be and of what someday will be. Well, a last word to you. I want to just say again, this conversation at Geneva about the nature and meaning of vocation, it's really the conversation of my life. And in some ways, it's becoming a conversation of global import through this project of the economics of mutuality. I don't think that M&Ms will ever save the world. That's really not my argument and my point and my, my hope. 
I do think that it's possible to bring some healing to business for the sake of the healing of the world. And it can be a signpost of the way business ought to be done, the way business should be done, the way business can be done, the way business someday will be done. As strange as it may sound to you people, as surprising as it may sound to you, there's nothing about this vision and project that is not rooted in what began to be me in my years here on College Hill. My commitments and my loves, my beliefs about God and the world, about human beings and history, that still run through my life, threading their way in and through the fabric of my life, were set in place here. And for that, I'm very grateful. The task of translation, to say it to you one more time tonight, the task of translation, Sunday we won't be sitting in the John White Chapel and Old Man of Geneva College. We'll be out in the world. The task of translation is what? For all of us, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, musicians, business people, whatever we're going to be in life, in the world for the rest of life. But the task of translation is this. Can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Hey, we do have, um, let me, let me first say, take care of some business. Thank you all for coming. Um, this is a great evening and we're happy that Steve is here for the week doing several different events and you're all welcome to join us tomorrow morning at 1010 for another talk. And I hope you'll consider being here again. I sit on the committee with Dr. Cole and others that developed the GVALS programs for the year. And one of the things that we said this year as we were thinking about having Dr. Garber come is we need to have him do something for our business majors especially. We need to have him do things for uh, small business owners. We have some friends in the room. And uh, because I don't know if we serve you all very well all the time through GVALS, we said it's time for this. And so we asked Steve to come and give this different vision of the vocation of being in business. Now, he used a certain example, a multi-billion dollar company. And so what we'd like to do now is open up the floor for people to ask questions about the business of business and this notion of healing business to heal the world, maybe outside of the Mars Corporation. So I'm going to walk around with the microphone, and um, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, this is the time. Jump in here. Over here, Keith. Thank you. Can you please tell me your name and where you're from? Hello, I'm Sarah Hoffman. I'm from a tiny town in Pennsylvania called Shermansdale. It's in central Pennsylvania. Um, And my question for you is, I am nowhere near a business major. And so most of what you said tonight was very helpful for me understanding like what is happening in the world. What are other like, like you talked about the crab story and that was very helpful, but like what other instances other than what you have talked about tonight that you have seen when it comes to like either small business stuff or big corporations? Yeah. Well, we should talk about this for a while, but we should be to my, to my other time just to talk about it because it's a good question. Um, but um, for many years, the chairman of the board of the Washington Institute was a friend named Hans Hess. 
And Hans uh, went off to seminary thinking he'd go off to be a missionary in the world. And then he decided after four years of study, I don't think I can do this after all, really. What am I going to do with my life? And he ended up coming to Washington, D.C. and, you know, responding to a, a letter from a, a, a district who was wondering why kids in America aren't being healed by antibiotics as they used to be. They get sick, antibiotics are prescribed, the kids don't get better. And Hans was tried, was supposed to answer the question. And he began to read about it. And one of the lines of answer that he began to be fascinated by was the argument that because we are eating from a meat supply, which is antibiotic laced, you know, in many ways, cows being given antibiotics to stop the diseases that are theirs because we give them things to eat they shouldn't be eating all the time, like grain all the time. Grain a little bit, yes, all the time, no. It makes their stomachs be sick. So we give them antibiotics to keep them getting sick before we kill them. And so the question was, well, you know, for Hans, could I make a healthier hamburger? And he and his wife went home at night and began to draw out plans and, you know, make numbers out on the paper and finally went to a bank and the banker, you know, audaciously, probably valiantly said, I'll help you start a business. They called it Elevation Burger. And, uh, and Elevation Burger made an argument about burgers that actually there's a way that burgers should be made in the world. Um, and uh, so he began to figure out, you know, if you actually got killed cows, hope you're not a vegetarian tonight because they did kill the cows, you know, um, but they killed the cows that killed the cows were actually healthy cows. They were eaten. They had eaten healthy food, mostly grass fed cattle, actually uh, organically produced cattle. In fact, even um, most of the supply was, first of all, in Virginia. Then there weren't enough cows in Virginia to supply him. And he went to Iowa and then there weren't enough cows in Iowa to support him. Finally, he had to go to Australia to buy. He was became the biggest exporter of cows, you know, from Australia. Uh, because there just were as a desire for people to eat healthier hamburgers. Um, now he also fried the French fries in in olive oil. Why was that? Because you see, your stomach and mine handles olive oil better than other oils. If you've ever been to Five Guys in your life, for example, I tried it a few times, and the last time Meg and I were at a little beach town in, you know, in the Atlantic Ocean for spring break for a few days and had bicycles, doing healthy things, biking out in the middle of the day, and the wind was blowing and smelling five guys across the way thinking, let's go get a hamburger, you know? And we walk in and, you know, we even split it in half because it was too big of a meal to have for the two, two of us. I couldn't eat for like 18 hours after that, you know? Because I was just sick to my stomach, you know. Why is that? Because, of course, it's such greasy, greasy, greasy grime you're putting into your body. Well, maybe when you're 20, you can do that. When you get to be more than 20 like I am, you know, your stomach begins to protest and say, what did you do to my, to me today, actually? You're not going to sleep all night long now. You know, get over it, you know. No more five guys for you, really. I began to notice that when Hans made his hamburgers and french fries, I could go for lunch, innocently having a hamburger and his olive oil fried fries. I wouldn't even think about it in the afternoon. So in some ways, I would say a lot of my theology is intuitively born. Thinking, huh, my stomach is telling me that there's something about this meal that's good for my body. 
My body doesn't cry out against it, actually. It doesn't say, what did you do? In the store, when you walked in, there was a sign, kind of nicely, nice graphics, but a sign that said, burgers the way they're meant to be. I would only, I will leave unnamed here, a seminary that all of you probably have heard its name. I'll just leave it at that. Came to spend a week with the Washington Institute, some of their top students, talking about vocation in the world. And uh, we took them here for a day and here for a day and here for a day and then talked them to Hans for lunch one day. <clears throat> These good seminary students heard Hans present his idea of vocation in business, selling hamburgers and fries like this. There was an overall suspicion, though, that Hans was pretending to be a serious Christian. Why? Because there was no sign in the store saying John 3.16 hamburgers. Yeah. How are we going to know that you're really a Christian if you don't have a sign in the store that says, I'm a Christian? You know, you got the sign that says, burgers are where they're meant to be? What do you mean by that, really? Yeah. I would tell Hans, you see, it's a lot more like Jesus, isn't it? Who says, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Eyes to see, then see. If you have a tongue to taste, then taste. Yeah. I could tell you a lot more stories, but I would say that they, they're good people trying to do good things, you know, all over the place. And I meet some of them, and I'm sure you do too. If you want to talk more about that, I could tell you some of the more stories I know. But in some ways, these are the stories of my life because this is my life. And it's those kinds of questions I'm always really interested in. You know, have you thought more than, you know, have we made the most money possible? Have we actually thought through the integrity of the product? thought through the way we relate to the customer, you know, and we actually thought through how we're relating to the earth itself and to the, to the meaning of business interactions. Is there a sense of covenant between us more than simply contract? So thank you. Across the way here. And your name Michael Myers. Uh, again, I'm also not a uh, business major. Okay. <laughs> and you're from uh, where? Slickley, Pennsylvania. My question to you is, so what obstacles, what, or what, what could we at least try to do when it comes to, uh, like bringing the covenant? Like, what are we, how can we adapt and help out these businesses, especially small businesses? Some that are, not making, you know, their men's meet, they're at, you know, the end of their, uh, you know, term and contract. Uh, it, you know, what can we do just to help provide, help, help them out yeah. in a sense? Yeah. It's a very good question. Um, I have a close friend, one of my closest friends owns a bookstore in Dallas town, Pennsylvania. I would say it's maybe the best bookstore in America. I don't know for sure, but it may be that really. He's at least the best bookseller in America. It's Ms. Byron Borger. He struggles and he works his tail off all day long into the night trying to do what? To sell books to people. Who's he have to compete with? It's one little word, begins with an A. You know what it is? Of course you do. You know. What do we have to do to buy from Amazon? You just go on, it's one click, and all of a sudden it's there tomorrow. It's hard for Byron to compete with Amazon. I make a practice of buying books from Byron. Um, I call up and he says, I say, would you please? He says, yes, I can, you know, and it's there, you know, within two or three days, almost all the time. 
really. Um, I think you have to make choices to take part in the marketplace in a responsible way, which actually honors the idea of covenant, of we're in this together. You know, Amazon has algorithms, which in some ways, Michael says, we know you, you know, you bought this last week, last month. Well, what about this today? And this and this, not because they know you or care about you. They just have algorithms that are sophisticated enough to know your buying patterns and say, well, if you bought this book then last week, then how about these three books this week, really? Not because they have any regard for you, have any care about you, really. Am I saying that Jeff Bezos is an evil man? I'm not at all. Am I saying that Amazon is an evil company? I'm not at all. I, in our part of Washington, D.C., when we moved there 30 years ago, there were four small hardware stores in our, probably within 10 minutes of where we lived. They're all gone, really. You know? The only two people in within probably a half an hour that sell hardware for me, who I live among my flowers, you heard that tonight, family and friends and flowers. I loved to work in among the flowers of our garden. You could go sometimes to Walmart, sometimes to Home Depot, you know, but there are no smaller hardware stores to buy from anymore. I work in my yard. I've got this Fiskar long pole that extends that you can actually cut branches out that need to be cut out. Well, I noticed last year that the blade was becoming so rusted because it just, we were gone for three years and it didn't get cared for and I need to replace it. Well, I think, okay, I hate to buy everything from Home Depot, but I'll go to Home Depot to get this, you know. We don't carry those anymore, you know. I go to Walmart. We don't carry those, really. I go online to Amazon. Have it there tomorrow for you, thank you. You know, I'm not saying that every purchase we make for Amazon is evil. You know, in the marketplace that exists today, sometimes it seems our only choice, really. But I would say when we can make choices... I think we ought to choose for covenant rather than contract. We ought to choose for commonwealth rather than for simply my wealth. We ought to choose for the common good rather than simply my good. When you can do that, you should do that, which is why in some ways it makes all the difference in the world to buy your coffee and tea across the street than rather than give Starbucks one more try, you know, at not caring about you. We're... Just about out of time, but Steve, I wanted to ask you one question that I'm wondering if other people are wondering, and I'm going to play the cynic for a moment. Ah, okay. So for I always of, say people do that. Why don't you? Rather than play the devil's advocate, play the angel's advocate. I will play the angel's advocate for a moment. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, so I was into bicycling for most of my life. Bicycling. Bicycling, and there's a saying. Bicycling. Bicycling. Okay, it's your mask. Like it yeah, I can. Yeah. So I'm ready to be done with the masks. Um, so in the bicycling world, there's a saying, cheap, strong, fast, pick two. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about people, profit, planet, mm-hmm. can we have all three? And what happens when we have to privilege two or one of those? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a cynical question. Um, I would say it's a real economic question, to use that good word. Yeah. Um, we never, ever get to make a choice which is perfect in this life. 
You know me well enough to know that I think that way, that I believe in that. I'm even writing a book on what I've called the proximate, making peace with the proximate, which is to make peace with something that's honest, something that's true, something that's real, even if you know that everything isn't accessible. Never, ever anything will be had completely. I believe in that world, Keith, and you do, you do too. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe that we ever get to make a perfect choice about anything. Um, I would say that we do our best. You know, we, we, we try to be faithful about it. We try to have integrity about it. Uh, and we realize that you know, it may not be that every purchase I make I can honor somebody like, you know, the folks across the street buying, you know, my Earl Grey tea in the morning or, a, you know, whatever it's going to be in the afternoon, a chai, chai tea like you did today. You know, I can't always do that, though I would like to do that, you know, that kind of a choice. Some days trying to get a blade to put on my extended pole for trimming the branches that died last winter. Amazon is the only place that seems to have the, have the blade, really. I'm not honoring that complexity much at all, that choice. Mm-hmm. I get that, really. Um, but uh, last night, I guess it was, maybe it was, I forget where it was. I guess it was last night downtown. I talked about how, for me, I become willing to live my life for signposts, to working to see a signpost come into being of the way things should be and could be in the world. Um, you know, I love to love my wife, Meg, you know, is our marriage a perfect marriage? Neither of us would ever say that. Is it a wonderful marriage? In many ways, it's that. Is it a good marriage? I think it is that. Is it a healthy marriage? Most of the time, really. Is it perfect? We would never, ever say that, really. No. So good, wonderful, satisfying, happy, those are good words, really. You know, There's something, even if they're not everything. No. I think in terms of, to use a good theological word in this institution here, if our eschatology requires perfection, that our best shots have to somehow, someday, bring about perfection, we just, we won't live in this world very long. We will spin out, you know, we will, you know, flame out. Because you see, in no part of life is that possible. I made this point this afternoon at the presentation, you know, being asked by Comment Magazine years ago to write about the vocation of politics. You've been watching Washington, D.C. for a long time. Is there vocation in politics? I gave an essay to them. I called Making Peace with Proximate Justice. And my argument was, if you want to stick with the vocation of politics, to stay at it over time, you're going to have to make peace with proximate justice. And what I meant was, if you require of your work, your life, because you're smart and you're ambitious and you're motivated and God spoke to you, most of all, I suppose, that all justice be done then when your work is done. Well, you know, what you'll find out in six months or three years is that it doesn't work that way in this now but not yet world, in this wounded, broken world. It just isn't like that, actually. So then what are you going to do? You know, become a cynic? You could become a cynic. You could become a stoic and say, well, I won't care anymore. You know? But if you can actually be somebody with an honestly born, truly rooted vision of vocation that can be sustained, you're going to be somebody who can make peace with proximate justice, with making choices in the political world that are for something that's honest and true and right, even if it isn't for everything. So 
In some ways, I would say all day long, Keith, we're making choices like that, of choosing for this and for this, knowing that everything isn't possible. But for me, that's a signpost, which is a good word. It's a signpost of what should be, of what could be, of, in fact, even eschatologically speaking, of what someday will be. I think that's a great way to finish for the night. Let's thank Dr. again, please. Thank you, Keith. Thank you very much. Let me say this. Steve invites people to say hello. He says it at the end of every talk that he gives. He means it. So if you'd like to come say hello, introduce yourself, you're welcome to do that. Again, we're meeting at 1010 in the morning if you want to join us here. If you're here for Dr. Fuse's class, there's a sign-up list outside the door. You can put your name on that. If you come tomorrow morning, I'll give you extra credit for any class you ever take from me. But I'll write your name down. Yeah, Matt Chubb gets extra credit tonight. And God bless you. Hey, thanks again for being here, everyone. It's been a blast, and I hope to see you tomorrow as well. Have a good night. Thank you for coming.